Hello, you are listening to the Michigan Mausoleum, your premier source for goth and alternative culture, news, and talk in the Great Lakes area. Now, come inside and join your host, Rokus Doran. Shall we begin? I've been waiting, Master. Welcome again, good dark ones. I'd like to start off by wishing a happy birthday to Miranda, High Priestess of Sparkly. It was she who greeted you at the creaking door. Happy birthday, Miranda. In this episode, I speak with John Gibson, organizer of the Asylum Windsor Goth Night event. And then I delve into the history and origins of one of my favorite ghostly figures of folklore. And then I'll sit down with several members of the Lansing punk community who are trying to make a difference in the world. But first, news and events. (laughs) News and events. Here's what's going on and what's coming up. Today, November 26th, is the birthday of Sophie Lancaster. The 20-year-old English woman and her boyfriend were attacked in 2007 by a gang of young men who police believed targeted the couple for their gothic clothing and appearance. Her boyfriend, Robert Maltby, survived the assault, but Sophie slipped into a coma and died 13 days later. The incident led to the formation of the Sophie Lancaster Foundation, whose stated mission is to stamp out prejudice, hatred, and intolerance everywhere. Sophie Lancaster would have been 37 today. The band Killing Joke has issued a statement confirming that guitarist Kevin Jordy Walker has passed away after suffering a stroke. The highly innovative and acclaimed guitarist was 64 years old. Rest in peace, Jordy. Deborah Fogarty of Diva Destruction has announced December 4th as the release date for a new song. The L.A.-based band has been relatively quiet since Run Cold, which was their last studio release. Fogarty also said the band has been rehearsing again for live performances, hinting at a possible tour. On December 9th, there will be two Krampusnacht events in the Great Lakes area. In Toronto, the 11th annual Krampus Ball will take place at 9 p.m. at the Opera House and will feature its traditional costume contest. For those of us on the Michigan side of the border, the first annual Krampusnacht celebration will take place in Old Town and Lansing. There will be a traditional Krampusnacht parade, vendors, storytellers, food, and more. The parade welcomes all costume participants, so put on your best Yule Lord and Winter Witch garb. And then on Saturday, December 16th, Krampus will be coming to Rio Town in Lansing. Come see Krampus and his merry band of misfit elves, and possibly even Mrs. Krampus herself. Bring the kitties out to be judged, to see who has been naughty or nice. Enjoy a fun day of holiday mischief and excitement, and maybe do some Christmas shopping, as well as photo ops, candy canes, hot chocolate, and holiday music. 
On Friday, December 22nd, Club 693 in Toronto will host the Nightmare Before Christmas post-punk dark wave goth party. There will be a $250 cash prize for Best Nightmare Before Christmas or Conjuring 2 costume. If you would like to experience the beauty of classical music by candlelight, the Candlelight Holiday Special, featuring the Nutcracker and more, will perform at the Lansing Central United Methodist Church on December 15th and 23rd. Experience the beauty of the season by music in a room lit only by candles. Tickets at feverup.com. Looking ahead to next year, Wicked, the musical, is coming to the Detroit Opera House. It will start on January 24th and run through February 18th. If you are aware of any news or events coming up that you think should be shared on the podcast, please message the show or go on the Michigan Mausoleum Facebook page and let us know. But for now... That is all ye know and all ye need to know. And that's what's going on in the area. Unfortunately, what is not going on anymore is the spooky season. Or at least the official spooky season. But the nights are still getting longer, and the dark half of the year is by no means over. And as far as I'm concerned, the cold, dark winter season is a perfectly legit time for huddling close to a fire, listening to ghost stories, and telling them as well. When it comes to spectral yarns, one of my all-time favorites is the myth of the Lady in White. The Lady in White is a very prolific ghost story. There are many examples of her reputed hauntings here in Michigan. The Snake Goddess of Belle Isle, the Ghost of Dice Road Cemetery, and the Lady of Kingsley Road in Traverse City are only a few examples. But her territory goes much further than just the Great Lakes area. The White Lady is one of the world's most widely spread of spooky stories. Tales of her hauntings are told throughout Eastern and Western Europe, as well as both North and South America. Even the Philippines and the island of Malta have their versions of the myth. The oldest of the White Lady stories dates back to the Middle Ages. She's fabled to appear by either night or day, and is usually associated with a particular family line. Sometimes she's thought of as a family protector, but usually her appearances foretell some kind of tragedy, often the imminent death of a member of the family. Other common themes of the story involve the lady herself being the victim of betrayal by a husband, a fiancé, or a lover. These stories frequently involve the tragic death of the lady's children as well. Some of the best-known versions of the story are to be found in the UK. Motherwell is a large town in North Lancashire, Scotland. It is home of the Old Mill Hotel, which is said to be haunted by the white-clad ghost of a woman who was supposed to be married at the hotel. Her intended never arrived at the wedding, so he was unable to defend her from being assaulted by another man who also wanted her. In a fit of misery, she ran to the local railroad tracks with thoughts of suicide. She sat on the edge of the track sobbing when a train came by, uh, causing her to jump back in fright. Afterwards, she fell dead to the ground. Her absentee fiancé is said to have been haunted for the rest of his life by his angry ghost bride, who was still wearing the wedding dress she died in. The grave of the woman believed to be this lady is located near the Old Mill Hotel. 
Also in Scotland is Castle Huntley, which is reputed to be haunted by a ghostly woman in flowing white robes. According to the story, she was the daughter of the Lyon family who occupied the castle in the 17th century. When an affair she was having with a servant was discovered, she was imprisoned in the tower. In her anguish, she jumped from the tower to her death. Some say they have seen her roaming the castle grounds or in the room where she was kept. In the town of Darwin in Lancashire, England, locals have a legend of a ghost lady who haunts a cemetery. Some say they've seen her ghost walking the area at night, searching for a child that was supposed to have been taken from her by a group of men who raped and murdered her. According to the legend, the White Lady of Darwin will manifest herself and attack anyone who dares speak the words, White Lady, White Lady, I stole your baby. The gravestone of the Darwin White Lady is supposed to uh, bear the image of a woman whose eyes will open if they are touched. Several deaths in the area have been attributed to the White Lady by folklore over the years. Another English version involves a woman who is believed to have jumped from a tower in Portchester Castle in Hampshire. She not only committed suicide, but took with her the newborn child that she did not want, and she is believed to haunt that castle to this day. There are many versions of the White Lady tale in the United States as well. There's a large hotel made entirely of logs called the Old Faithful Inn at Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. It stands nearby the famous geyser of the same name and is said to be home uh, to a headless ghost lady who, like the old Mill Hotel bride, died in her wedding dress. According to the story, she was decapitated by her new husband while staying at the inn. The story does not say what happened to the husband, but the dead bride apparently never checked out. St. Augustine, Florida has a graveyard called the uh, Talamato Cemetery, which has had stories of a haunting by a white lady since the 19th century. Like many other versions of the white lady tale, this legend states that the ghost of the spirit of a young woman died on her way to be married, and she was uh, buried in her wedding dress. Durand Eastman Park in Rochester, New York, has many versions of a local story involving a vengeful, white-clad woman who is believed to be the spirit of a mother whose daughter was kidnapped, raped, and murdered. This ghostly woman certainly seems to get around, doesn't she? Those examples are only a few of the many variants of the white lady tale that can be found worldwide. The story has traveled by word of mouth and been adopted into the customs and lore of many locations and become associated with some factual events in those places. This is a process known to folklorists as rehosting. But where did the white lady originate? In many cases, it's not really possible to tell where a widely told myth comes from. However, the origins of the story of the white lady are in fact traceable to the Plassenburg Castle in the city of Kumbach in Bavaria, now part of modern-day Germany. Plassenburg is one of the most impressive and historically important castles in Germany. Built in the early 12th century, it has been burned down, rebuilt, and occupied by numerous families. According to the Plassenburg story, the original white lady was the Countess Kunigund von Orlemont. Following the death of her husband, this countess met and fell in love with a knight and told him that he, she wished to marry him. 
He told her that he would marry her too if there were not, in his words, four eyes between us. It seems this cryptic answer was supposed to refer to the knight's parents who would not approve of the marriage. But the countess thought he meant that he did not want the responsibility of her two children. So rather than give him up, she killed her children by piercing their skulls with one of her golden hairpins. Not wanting to marry a child murderer, the knight wanted nothing to do with her. Tormented by her misery over losing the knight she loved and having murdered her children, the countess went to Rome to seek absolution from the Pope, who would only give her forgiveness if she devoted the rest of her life to monastic work. As part of her penance, she walked on her knees all the way from Plassenburg to the Berneck Valley to establish the monastery there. In some versions of the story, she fell dead in the attempt. In others, she did establish a monastery called Heaven's Crown, where she became a nun and spent the rest of her life there, which only lasted into her early 30s. But it seems following the Pope's advice did not give her the peace she sought. Ever since her death, she has haunted Plassenburg Castle and a number of other castles in the area. She's even managed to appear at various family castles simultaneously. And of course, her appearances always foretell misfortune and death. So that is the original White Lady tale, which has caused so many nightmares and given birth to so many deliciously macabre and widely distributed variants. But are there any actual historical facts behind the story? There was, in fact, a Countess von Orlemond who was married to Count Otto von Orlemond, Plassenburg in 1321, and she is famous for having founded a monastery, but she could not have been a child killer as she and her husband of 20 years never had children. Following her husband's death, she did become a nun at the monastery and died there in 1385. However, she died in her 70s, not her 30s. Well, what about the knight she wanted to marry? It is not clear if the Countess wanted to marry again or not, but if so, the, the failure of this second marriage to happen apparently had nothing to do with the Countess's non-existent children. A tour guide at the Plassenburg Castle once stated that the knight did not want her because she was impoverished. It seemed that upon her husband's death, another Count inherited all, inherited all of the estate, and this left the Countess essentially penniless. And that would have made her a far less desirable bride, and is in fact why she went into the monastery. But how did the Countess end up as this fabled ghost? And how did the legend get the momentum to be seeded so widely? Surely there must be something more to it. Indeed there is. The earliest mention of the White Lady's ghost dates to 1486, nearly a century after the death of the Countess, and took place at Castle Beiruth. It seems that this castle, like many others, were often beset with unwelcome guests or military occupiers. That's not unusual in the history of Europe, as wars often had castles being occupied or changing hands. When you came in, you said something about a ghost. Yes, I'm getting to that, I promise. Just stick with me. It seems the inhabitants of this castle were the ones who were originally responsible for having invented the idea of the Countess's ghost in order to get rid of unwanted guests and military occupiers. One such guest was a Count who was particularly gullible and the castle inhabitants enjoyed scaring him immensely. 
This began a sort of castle tradition wherein court ladies, and on occasion men, would dress up as the white lady to scare guests. This came in particularly useful when the castle was occupied by the French for three years, starting in 1806. The white lady took particular delight in annoying them. By one account, she appeared to the French divisional commander on his first night spent in the castle. She reportedly treated him quite rudely, and he was found by one of his men cowering under his bed the next morning. Not to be outdone, Castle Plassenburg began having its own white gowned ghost roam its dark corridors and chambers starting in 1488. And it seems only fair, as the Plassenburg is where the real-life Countess had lived after all. But this too was a hoax. It was one of the court ladies dressing up to play the role, and others began to imitate her. The tradition of dressing up as the white lady continued for centuries and spread to other castles and even other countries. The white lady appeared to a castle guard in Vienna, Austria in 1873. The frightened guard tried to stab the ghost with his bayonet as she departed. The next day, the city was buzzing with rumors about someone from the imperial court having been seriously injured. It was, in fact, a lady of the court who had been uh, playing a dangerous prank on the guard. There are other accounts from various castles where the white lady pranksters were either injured or killed by those they were trying to scare. And there it is. So it seems through centuries of promotion through traditions of hoaxing and no small amount of shameless pranksterism are major reasons why the white lady took hold and spread as far as it did. But I really don't think that's the only reason. Aspects of the story, such as young love turned to betrayal and the death of children, reach our emotions at a very primal level. The image of a young woman doomed to an eternity of misery, searching for a child she can never be reunited with, not to mention the fact that she must forever wear the wedding dress that should have given her happiness in life, but is now only a reminder of despair and hopelessness. Can there be any more painful and potent symbol of innocence lost? I think these are important reasons why the white lady has taken hold of the imaginations of so many around the world. But is there any truth to the various places actually being haunted by a female spirit? Well, the only one of the locations I mentioned before that I have personally visited is the Old Faithful Inn at Yellowstone. And while I was there, I did not see any headless women, but I did see another remarkable and rather macabre presence. The hotel is inhabited by a colony of bats that live in and fly freely throughout the hotel. They're quite harmless and are a particular attraction for tourists, and perhaps they create an atmosphere conducive to ghost stories. And that's the story of the White Lady. Thank you for listening. And I'm here talking with John Gibson, the event organizer and lead DJ for Asylum Windsor. John, hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? I couldn't be better if I was somebody else. (laughs) Okay, so you are the organizer of a recurring uh, goth night event in, uh, in Windsor, Ontario. Yes. Okay. Um, tell us about this. How long has it been going? How did it originate? Um, what exactly well, is it? Well, it's, uh, it's had quite the evolution going. Uh, we launched back in 2019, though the 
the seeds of it actually go all the way back to 2016. And uh, as for when, it's, you know, the, we're the first Saturday of each month at Villains Bistro in downtown Windsor, which has been a very wonderful uh, venue to work with. Um, you know, back going back uh, to when we started it, me and, uh, you know, partner of mine, a buddy of mine, uh, Sergio Mazzotta, we, you know, we had the idea of, uh, you know, okay, let's do something. And we had talked a lot to villains and they they openly said, hey, you know, we didn't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't know what this is. I don't know what you're trying to do, but hey, sounds interesting. Let's give it a try. So they hadn't done so, a lot of alternative nights or goth nights before? No, uh, they're probably, well, they lean very heavily into the, all kinds of uh, spooky aesthetic and, even with the uh, name of uh, villains, you walk in, there's chandeliers all over the place, and every pop culture villain imaginable is in charcoal drawings all over the walls, and they lean oh, cool. real heavy into the fantasy and sci-fi and the weird, but they had never done anything of, you know, the goth, the industrial, the dark alternative, anything of that nature. Actually, the first time I walked in there, they happened to have some, like, Iggy and the Stooges playing, and I was like, holy crap, I need to do something <laughs> with these people, this place is awesome. It's like I can sit here, have a Guinness, and listen to some Iggy. I'm in. That sounds awesome. I've never been there. I've, I'm in Lansing, uh, Michigan, but uh, that's only a couple of hours away. I'm thinking I need to make a trip. Yeah, it's a really good. It's a cool venue. They do a lot of uh, live music primarily, so they have you know a good stage set up, and they have their own house sound system. But you know, villains themselves, they're always looking for ways to. Bring anyone who's a little counterculture or a little on the fringes to them. So they're very, very willing to work with a lot of people. I know they've held a lot of uh, nights for the LGBTQ uh, community. They've held nights for, they used to hold Dungeons and Dragons nights there. Just anything that's interesting and different, they're willing to try. How did Asylum get going? Well, we, like I said, we had approached them and they said, you know, they were willing to give it a try. In our initial uh, rendition, we wanted to make, uh, do something different because like my pedigree, I go back to being working security in the 90s at City Club. And I, you know, I learned how to DJ at City Club and I've done a lot at Smalls and Hamtramck. And I looked at, you know, okay, what have I done in the States and what has Sergio already done over here with, you know, places like the Loop and the, the Coach and Horses and how do we do it differently? You know, Sergio's uh, background is he's an art teacher and he's primarily an artist. So we decided to incorporate that. So one of the first things we did is start reaching out to the local art community and saying, hey, we're going to put together a music night. But we want to surround it with just dark art from local artists as well. And that that's been a very successful arm of it. So not only are we, you know, pushing the music out there. It's an art show every month as well. So we have a constant rotation of artists. And we had some, you know, costs initially. So what we would do, we would we would have a uh, cover of pay what you want cover. And that was just kind of cover any kind of expenses we had, any advertising, flyers, whatever. And whatever was left over, we donated to local charities. We've donated, you know, the women's shelters and the homeless shelters and, you know, the trans wellness uh, center. I, it was, I believe it was uh, We Trans is what it was called then. I know it's changed its name. I don't know what it's changed its name to since then. And, you know, we were we were doing fairly well under that and growing pretty well. Then COVID struck. Right. Shut us down just like anyone else. Coming out of COVID, we, you know, we had the conversation of, well, do we bring this back? 
It's like, well, yeah, but there, there's nothing else in Windsor for the alternative community. So, okay, you know, we decided to bring it back. And we re we looked at absolutely everything that was involved with the event. And we decided instead of, you know, taking a cover and raising any type of money and donating it to the local charities, we wanted our charity to be the community. We've been community focused from the very beginning. So we don't charge a cover and it's now agreed uh, by the entire team. We'll never charge a cover for asylum because we don't want anybody through just any fiscal hardships to not be able to come out and enjoy the community and enjoy the art and enjoy music and the venue. We don't want to price anybody out. If all you can do is just show up and hang out with your friends. Great. We love you. We're happy to have you. Is there a place they so, can donate? I'm sorry. Is is there any place they can donate or like a, like an optional amount they can pay? Yeah, we know we keep a tip jar in front of where the DJs set up and you know, some, Sometimes people pitch in, sometimes they don't. We did, you know, for to be fully transparent, while we renegotiated with the uh, venue. So, you know, the venue helps uh, cover some of our costs. We're not, but we don't do this for money. But we do get something out of uh, villains out for this because we, we do bring a lot of people. We hit capacity almost every single night. So we relaunched, like I said, decided not to have any type of cover but we also expanded the team and we're actually expanding a second time right now so you know my wife marcy she joined in she's been helping promote she actually spends a lot of time researching music for me you know uh we brought in another uh dj uh sterling dj sin and he's he's been phenomenal he's uh just broke one year with us his wife martina is part of the team and she does a lot of the promotions for us we have a woman named melissa that's taken on our social media presence so if you see us on social media instagram anything of that nature eight times out of ten that's melissa you're seeing do that but so did this relaunch also... i'm sorry sorry i didn't mean sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i was gonna say so did this uh did the relaunch happen a year ago just a little over a year ago, we did drag our feet a bit on, you know, if we were going to relaunch, we didn't know if there was an appetite for it. We didn't know in the post-COVID world if anyone would want to show up and be in a crowd ever again. We we really didn't know. And, yeah, we, we really drug our feet and I, but decided. I yeah, I hear that. A lot of events are, are people are only just starting to trickle back. Mm-hmm. And. And it's funny, I'm, I'm very thankful we did because we get a lot of feedback from the community that, you know, it's been very good for their mental health to be able to come out and be weird, be different, be eccentric, to just be whatever version of themselves as they need to, they need to be amongst peers. And after so much isolation, there seems to be a lot of people who, who really, truly appreciate it. And we've developed a very strong community, you know, not just the six of us who are involved with running it, but we're just, there's a lot of regulars and we even go through and a lot of time, if we see someone by themselves is something Melissa's really good at. We see someone who's by themselves, someone we don't recognize, she'll go up and she'll become their best friend for 10 minutes. You know, who are you? What's your story? What are, you know, what brought you here? What what do you need out of this? And she'll take them around, introduce them to like-minded people. And we try to foster the sense of community. And we've, you know, we've reached out to various other uh, communities there. So it's not just goth, but, you know, 
I've never called us goth. I've always called us a dark alternative because while I will spin a lot of, you know, traditional goth music, real, you know, we do flirt with the agrotech. We do flirt with the industrial old and new and the synth pop and everything else. And, you know, that falls under that umbrella. And we actually try to check every box musically. But we do reach out to any any community that's that's in need of having a place to go. So you, there's really any any walk of life you can imagine is in there, and it's beautiful. Our only rule is, just be cool. We don't care who you are. We don't care, you know, what you believe. We don't just just be cool. If you're not cool once, you're gone. We have zero tolerance for it. But as long as you can be cool, we want you there. Do you get cool people coming in from Detroit? We get a lot of people in from Detroit. We have people that come in from Chicago. We've had people come down, you know, from the Toledo. We've had people from Cleveland, out in Toronto, Hamilton. So we get people who will uh, travel quite a distance. We have people from Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids come in. So we do get uh, people from all over the place. We have people who come in and get a hotel room and just stay in Windsor for the weekend. It's kind of surreal to see that this this is a thing this is giving me some ideas i've i i don't remember the last time i was in windsor but i'm I'm thinking i need to we'd we'd love to have you and i mean we're really just minutes from the tunnel as well you can park at the river and walk to the venue in five minutes right do you have anything coming up as far as like uh, special uh, theme wise or anything you'd like people to know the uh the special theme thing we have coming is a uh, a night where I mentioned earlier that we were growing again. As well, we're launching a new night in the upstairs of the venue. It's a smaller, more intimate setting, and we've uh, it kicks off on January twentieth. We've titled it Dark Entries, and how it's different <laughs> from anything else we're, we've done or anything else we've seen is we're bringing in the youth. We're bringing in people who are the new generation of you know, the dark, dark alternative fans, people who have different sensibilities who have interest in learning how to DJ and learning how, how to do it. And I'm setting them up with all of my equipment. I'm giving them a crash course of, you know, Hey, this is how it all works. But every person that we're putting out there on these dark entries nights are not uh, seasoned DJs. They're brand new, fresh blood with the hope that eventually we'll come to a stable core of three to four people who can continue doing this and have a second night running that's affiliated with ours, but with modern sensibilities and whatever that means, you know, it's like I said, I've been doing this, you know, 25 years. I'm not the future, but I'm trying to, we're trying to set up the future. We're trying to, you know, give an environment and give, give the opportunity to the next generation of goths to have a night of their own and to have a venue of their own. And Villains has been so cool about all of this. So that kicks off on January 20th. And yeah, there's going to be four people who are going to be spinning who have never spun before, but they're bringing their favorite music and they're going to, they're going to learn as they go to a live floor in an intimate setting with amongst their friends and, grow and develop and hopefully set up a whole new generation of people to be able to experience this life with us. So dark entries then starts January 20th. Yes. Okay. And the uh, asylum Windsor, what uh, is that 
um, I take it that's monthly. When does that typically happen? First Saturday of uh, each month from 9 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. Very cool. Uh, is there anything else you'd like uh, anyone listening to know? I always have, like to throw in our tagline and our, uh, the, you know, I'm always very careful to explain that when you hear the word asylum, we don't mean sanatorium or anything of that nature. We really are trying to be a place of sanctuary for anybody who needs it. If you want to just listen to cool music and hang out with interesting people, you know, we are your asylum. You know, we are there for the people who seek it. Just come and see us. That That is a very cool mission statement. And um, I, uh, you will eventually see me there before too long, I hope. I look forward to it. It's a, like I said, it's a groovy little place, uh, about 120 person capacity. And we usually sit right around that number and just having a great time with friends. All right. Uh, John Gibson of Asylum Windsor, thank you very much. All right. Thanks for having me. Hello, listeners. Uh, For this episode's uh, roundtable discussion, it didn't work out quite as planned. Um, I did did intend to have participants from uh, a number of uh, punk-based organizations in the area uh, coming together uh, to talk about what they do, but um, unfortunately it didn't work out quite that way. Coordination was a problem, so I had to settle for interviewing them individually, and that's how I'm presenting it here. Uh, My first guest will be Theory Ezra of the Punk Art Collective, and that will be followed by John Mark and Kelsey Hector. So here they are. Hello, and I am uh, currently with Theory Ezra, founding member and president of the Lansing Group <laughs> Punk Art Collective. Hello, Theory. Hi there. <laughs> it's really goofy still. It feels like being called the president, even though it is my technical title. I've been calling myself the anti-president this entire time. So. <laughs> you know, anti-president sounds more, you know, kind of punk and alternative anyway so that works for me well you know it kind of started when we were electing positions and we were deciding who was going to be who there was an election that came down to who was going to be treasurer and who was going to be president after i had made this big stink about how i didn't think we should have a president we're a punk art collective we should be run by a unilaterally powerful board of directors who's each running their own subcommittee and everyone kind of laughed me off and was like, nah, 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 nah. If we're going to have nonprofit status, we need to have a president and we should just have a point person anyways. And it came down to co-treasurer and president. So I looked at my co-founder and said, so do you want to flip a coin for it? And <laughs> sure <laughs> enough, I, who argued so adamantly against us having a president, became president and so I immediately dubbed myself the anti-president because so I you became, sounded more punk rock. <laughs> you, you became president by a coin toss. Absolutely. And it's always kind of been like that in punk art. Like we do things in a way that's a little bit different than most people because we're definitely run in a more, I, I mean, there's no other word for it than like punk rock or alternative or but like in general, it's just very amicable the way we decide things. And it felt fair between the two people who started the group. But the funniest thing is, we both found out afterwards that if I had been elected treasurer, I had said I was absolutely going to concede it. 
I'm not good at math. I can't do math for the life of me. And so <laughs> I was going to concede that position and just say, I'm happy being merchandising chair and outreach chair. But my co-founder said that if they had gotten president and I found this out after the fact, they were going to concede the position to me. So it sounds like regardless, I was intended to be where I'm at. And at this point, I, um, I can't begrudge it because it's been a really wonderful journey getting to where we are. Well, you know, as anarchy goes, that actually sounds fairly organized. So I, I'm glad it works for you guys. We do our best to balance it. You know, it is kind of funny, though. I absolutely love my group. Sometimes it can be a little bit like herding cats. <laughs> um, but they're all like wonderful artists with fluid minds and fluid kind of interests. And so I never begrudge anyone when someone's running a little bit late for a meeting or anything like that. We're a very supportive group. We really kind of try to balance, like you said, the anarchy with the organization and also balance it with treating everyone like they actually deserve to have their mental health honored as though it matters. Um, and that's been really important. We've realized that like, even though we've got to put a lot of work into this, people need to take breaks. And so I find it to be just a really, like I said, a well-balanced group. And um, we're really trying to, I maybe I'm talking this up a little bit because we're really trying to grow our governing body right now. Okay. Well, why don't we uh, start off with uh, letting the listeners know exactly what the Punk Art Collective is. You are a Lansing-based group. What What is the Punk Art Collective? Well, I think the best way to put it is um, our goal kind of encompasses, encompasses everything. It's sort of our mission statement. It slid out of my mouth one day while we were doing outreach at um, Stoop Fest in Lansing, a really cool music festival. I was chatting with some people and I said, our goal really at the end of the day is to create community by creating with our community. And me and my co-founder Vivian looked at each other and were like, whoa. And that's really become like the statement that encompasses all that we're doing, like the heart of what we're doing. Because what we do is we go out into the community and provide free artistic opportunities. Our operative words are free, inclusive, and intersectional because the goal is to build intersectional connections amongst people through the process of creating art. We have a monthly meetup at the Avenue Cafe on Michigan Ave in Lansing. It's the third Wednesday of every month from 6 to 11 p.m. And what we do is we bring tubs and tubs and tubs of art supplies that anyone can dive into to create whatever they want. However, we also do a guided activity in case someone needs to like get their gears turning um, we've done collage, we've done a few fundraisers. We're actually working on one right now that needs a little more discussion with the group before I bring it out. But that's one of the things that we love is that we're a cause that we can really lend ourselves to whatever. Since we show up with our art supplies and invite people to bring their own to our meetups specifically so they can share our talents with us. But we also can bring those tubs of art supplies to different events, which we've done, as I mentioned, Stoopfest. We were participants in the Capital Area, uh, Capital City Comic Con. Um, we also just hosted our own lar first large event. It was a pumpkin carving contest, P-U-N-K-I-N, if you will. And that was really excellent. So 
we kind of, and we also raised some money for MSU after the tragedy that happened, donated 100% of the proceeds for some pins and stickers we created um, as anti-gun violence, with an anti-gun violence message and um, to the Spartan Strong Fund, which is something that I'm really proud of us to be, have been able to do because that was within the first month of us kind of starting what we were doing. And um, in the wake of that tragedy, we tried our best to really lend ourselves to the community. And that's how we sort of started, was facing down this huge thing and trying to figure out how we could be of support to people. And um, sorry, I get really emotional thinking about what happened then. And um, at the same time, it was like this horrible thing that we had to navigate and figure out how we could support and um doing that i think kind of led us to really know that that's what we wanted to do was figure out how to support the community in any way we could in the face of anything um whew, sorry <laughs> well and attendees of uh the uh, world goth day uh, film festival will remember you having been there what what did oh, you do absolutely there? i was gonna get to that sorry i went on a little bit of an emotional tangent um there for a second but we absolutely loved being there it was so fun to be able to create buttons with people because like i said we always bring a guided activity and um uh we try to get people involved in that way and always try to give them something that they can leave with something that they can remember us by and remember our message by Oops, sorry i'm falling off my chair here <laughs> so it seems like uh, what you what you mainly do is reach out to the community and try to get them involved in creating art is there a particular like either overall message or thrust behind the art that you you do like I said, I think our mission statement is the most important thing is creating community by creating with our community and lending ourselves in any way, shape and form that we can to um, especially like underserviced communities in the area. I mean, we know for a fact that they're taking art out of schools. Um, my son is blessedly has school of choice. Um, and however, if he was in the district that we live in, based on what we can afford, he would be in a district where they don't have any art or music in schools. And one of the things that punk art is really trying to do right now is expand what we can do for kids in the area. Right now at our monthly meetup, we can only have kids there for the first half of it because our wonderful, awesome venue that we could never have done with this without. And I can't wait to talk about them a little bit. Um, we, they are technically, a, they're a cafe, but they do technically become the most amazing bar on the face of the planet around 8.30, 9 p.m. And so kids are allowed to come for the first portion of it, um, not the whole thing. But we want to do more for the children in the area, in the greater Lansing area. And so we're trying to expand to a second meetup at a secondary wonderful location. Um, the flag were in talks with the person who runs it, Jerry, who's absolutely spectacular and who's been a huge supporter. This is actually, I'm sitting in the fledge right now. <laughs> it's where we hold our board meetings. It's where we held our pumpkin carving contest. And we're trying to expand to having another monthly meetup where children are going to be able to attend more easily because that is 
we found that they are kind of our core demographic. When we show, we were at a really wonderful festival called the Welcome Summer Festival and ended up, there was a birthday party happening there at the same time. And we essentially, our rock painting activity became the favorite activity of not just the children who were attending the Welcome Summer Festival with their parents, who were very appreciative of them being able to just hang out with us and paint rocks, but also a favorite activity of this birthday party that was happening nearby. It actually got us joking around about how punk art should probably start doing birthday parties as a way to raise money. Now, you talked about uh, how Lansing schools are lacking art and music. Have you thought about doing anything direct, like partnering up with the schools or with, or maybe directly with teachers and, get, and maybe doing something in the schools? You know, that's a wonderful idea that you're putting to me. We've thought a lot about trying to get involved with the libraries. However, that's a light bulb moment for me that you would bring that up. It's definitely something that we'd be interested in doing because, again, we really want to support the underserviced communities. And kids are kind of part of that. Kids are their own community. And they deserve artistic opportunities where they can express themselves and truly, you know, let their minds expand. Because we don't realize that we need to build these different neural pathways besides just math, science, and literature, I mean, those things are so vital and so important, but art sometimes just seems to get left by the wayside in all of that, when art can actually be involved in all of those things as part of that process of learning. Right. Now, how did the, all of this get, you were a founding member. Uh, were you the only founding member? Did <laughs> others get on board with you? Um, Basically, how did this start as an idea and how did the ball get rolling? <laughs> Sorry, I'm giggling a little bit because it's me and my co-founder Vivian who currently is a little less involved because they have their own project. They have so many irons in the fire. They're one of the most impressive people I know in terms of like being a part of this community and getting things done and being involved in multiple projects. Um, but now I'm kind of the leftover founding member who's still running things. But the way this started was... <laughs> A maybe somewhat drunken five-minute conversation at the aforementioned avenue between me and Vivian as, hey, we should get all our friends together and do some arts and crafts. Then it was like, where are we going to do it? We're like, why don't we do it at the bar? We're all here anyways. We should just bring a bunch of stuff to the bar, invite people to bring their own stuff. It'll be great. And then it turned into, what if we brought like a guided project too so that we could like help people get inspired if they don't know what to do and then it turned into what if we do this every month and then 20 to 30 people i can't remember the exact number but it was over 20 people showed up to our first meetup and me and vivian kind of looked at each other and we're like whoa five minute bar conversation to this this has some power behind it and the first meeting prior to the first event, I couldn't really get anyone to come to the kind of planning. So the second meetup for the kind of what was going to become our governing body, instead of calling it the board of directors, I called it the board of disruptors. And then we got some really wonderful people involved. Um, and that governing body has been a little bit fluid since then. Like I said, we're really trying to build that up. But from five minute bar conversation to a year later now, 
where we are planning our second large event that is actually our one year anniversary party. That's a huge deal. And we actually have had people, we had a chapter pop up in um, Ontario. So in Canada, and we haven't gotten to have a lot of contact with them. Maybe they'll hear this and they'll reach out to us again. But if anyone in any area really wants to start something like this, we're building the blueprint for you. And we want you to be able to do that too. One of our other kind of slogans is we spread like a fungus. All of our shirts say that. And um, what that means is we kind of want to communicate in the same way that mushrooms do, like in the mycelium network, just all be interconnected, but be able to pop up wherever we can in any environment, because that's what mushrooms do. They show up wherever (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I have I have the shirt that that you did for uh, you made a shirt for the event, the World Goth Day on the 23rd. I think it's the only white T-shirt I own. But, <laughs> but I, I do remember seeing that on there. Yeah, that it's it's pretty amazing. And it does. I remember it mentions the the, the mycelial network. Yeah, that's kind of our plan. When we talk about like the constitution of our governing body, which is something that we are ever more working on and trying to build into an actual singular document at this point. Um, Another reason we need to grow our governing body so we can have more hands on deck for doing things like that. But what we want to call it at the end of the day, we don't want it to just be a rule book. We want it to, like I kind of mentioned, to be a blueprint. So anyone who we run into who sees what we're doing, if we get to if we're lucky enough to maybe get to go to a convention out of state or something or even lucky enough to have someone from out of state just see us at something local we want. And they say, this is really cool. How did you do this? We want to be able to say, what's your email? We have a PDF for you. And we want to call that the mycelium blueprint. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. Mm-hmm. Now, you said you have an upcoming event that you are planning for. Can you uh, tell the listeners a little more about that? Absolutely. And I'm so excited for this. I actually just got the email for our flyer. I'll send it off to you in just a little bit. Um it is the punk prom at the avenue on january 5th the timing of when it starts is a little bit fluid we're gonna have vendors it's a karaoke night so you can come and perform your favorite punk song or kind of whatever song you want to everyone's gonna cheer for you anyways again i'd love to do a shout out to this venue the app we couldn't have done this without the avenue um and we are very very pumped about this we're gonna have an election for a by crowd response for a prom queen a prom king drag accepted for both and a prom lord for any of our non-binary people out there who still want to participate and really anyone can go up for any or any because gender's not real that's something that i think i can say is my personal opinion that punk art kind of gets behind <laughs> we're very welcoming of anyone and we want to make sure that we're being super inclusive and that's what this event's going to be we want to have everyone come there's no cover fee it's going to be excellent we're going to have some really 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 cool vendors available and we're actually looking for more it's only ten dollars for a vendor fee if you want to come we've got some limited spots but if you have something cool that you feel like fits in you should reach out to us and i can give you the contact information for that um where do, pe- where do people go online if they want to get in touch with you, either for this or for future projects you're doing? My recommendation is that you follow Punk Art Collective on Facebook and Instagram. And we also have our email. 
which is punkartcollective at gmail.com or punkartmeetup at gmail.com. Um, the best way is usually sending us a message via Facebook. Um, if you find me on Facebook, I um, have, you can follow me on there. I post a lot about a lot of it. Um, I'm Theo Ezra um, Grandy Castle, and I'm also someone who people can feel free to reach out to if it's related to Punk Art Collective. Um, however, again, the best way is through our Facebook page, and that's where you'll see about all of our events. Um, because we, we, and we are, a, I sorry, I can't like talk about this without saying how proud I am of how far we've come and how much we want you to be a part of this. Anyone who's listening, how much we want you to come join us. So please take this information and reach out to us. Um, reach out to me, come get involved. Um, like I said, we're trying to grow our governing body. We have some really wonderful people in the community who have been huge supports. Again, I wanna do a huge shout out to like the Avenue Cafe. They are, we couldn't have done this without them. They have been our free venue <laughs> since the very beginning and have put up with us showing up with six, three to six tubs of art supplies every month for about a year now. Um, and are one of the most welcoming, wonderful, inclusive places on earth. Ditto the Fledge, who are one of, it's one of the core um, standbys in our community that's really supporting all the cool projects you can possibly think of in the Lansing area. And um, all of these places are great places to go and get involved. And we'd love to be your conduit for getting involved in them. Okay, so... Theory Ezra, anti-president of the Board of Disruptors of the <laughs> Punk Art Collective. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And welcome. I am with my special guests for this, uh, this episode. Uh, first, uh, John Mark, who is a punk theologian. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. And uh, your partner is also with you, uh, Kelsey. Yes, thank you. Okay. okay, okay. Hello, Kelsey. And uh, Kelsey, do you consider yourself a uh, punk theologian, also, um, or theologist? I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. No, I'm kind of a fucking enigma of many things, but punk definitely is intertwined there in some aspects. Okay. Well, welcome to you both. Uh, John, Mark, could you start off by, um, I'll admit that punk theology is a new one on me. So will you explain to me and to the listeners what punk theology is? Yeah. So punk theology is actually um, an expanding project I'm working on through grad school. Um, I first thought about it as a theological framework when I was in my kitchen doing dishes one day. Um, and I was listening Logging Molly or Green Day or something. And I thought about how punk voices, especially through music and poetry, are prophetic. And how oftentimes when we go to concerts or punk spaces, those are very much religious spaces. And so I thought to myself, I couldn't be the first person to kind of have this type of idea. Um, I'm not the first, but there are not many people who think about this idea. Um, but I found um, Dr. Frances Stewart, she wrote a book called Punk Rock is My Religion, um, where she talks about how punk is an implicit religion instead of explicit, how it kind of functions in many of the ways that we think of when we think about explicit religious spaces. And then I found another book by Mark Johnson. Um, and 
he kind of talked about how the history of punk and how it acted um, in a very religious way. I think I think it's called seditious theology. And so with those two things underneath me, as well as my own framework, um, I thought there has to be something more that we can explore here. And so it's just, it's looking at theology through a lens of resistance, or as Amy Spencer says, um, punk basically had a simple message, um, the rejection of existing rules, the assertion of a need for change and a desperate call to be yourself. And I think that there is room to talk about theology within that framework. And that's how it got started. So what then would you call the basic framework of punk theology? Does it have tenets? Um, so punks are generally individual. Um, one thing I think about, so Queercore, um, which is a subculture within punk culture, and Riot Girl um, is another subculture. Um, they both focused on community and creating new spaces for people who didn't have spaces. Um, so for Queercore and Riot Girl, it was largely the LGBTQ community as well as women. And um, it largely started on the West Coast and in um, Canada. Um, so with punk being like kind of like a, the hardcore scene was kind of like a masochistic, or not a masochistic scene, but a, a male center scene. Um, very much a, a male dominated thing and there wasn't spaces for people who existed outside of the heteronormative way of existing within those spaces. So they had to create their own safe spaces. Um, so creating, creating spaces for the disenfranchised, I think is a core tenet of a lot of my theology, um, leaning into the prophetic voices, not only of musicians and poets and artists, but the people within your community, um, they have a lot to say and to lean in on that and help create alternative realities, um, pushing against a lot of like the things that we think of like status quo and the things that the way things have been done um, in new ways is largely what's going on. And uh, does, does, how does this feed into activism or what you, you do in a practical way in the world? Yeah, so that's actually pra praxis or the practical aspect is something that to me is the most important. Um, and so punk has always been an active response. Uh, well, especially when it took root in um, London. So London is the kind of the birthplace of the political punk movement. And during that time at the end of the 60s, um, the kids who were graduating were coming into a world where they didn't have jobs, where the working class was basically being shit upon. The opportunities were not there. And so absent a government taking care of them, they found creative ways to start taking care of themselves and expressing their frustrations while lifting up um, others around them. Um, so it's, it's always been practical in not only a creative aspect, but a political aspect of really centering this type of do-it-yourself ethic and providing for the needs of people around you as well as yourself. And I think, I think too, with a lot of local organizations that we have, like Punks with Lunch, you see this like punk ideology and framework coming through in community service. And I think the key difference between that type of advocacy work and say governmental advocacy work or more rigorous church-centered activist work is that we come to 
we come to the table understanding that everyone is deserving of kindness, respect, and, you know, equity. Right. Um, and that's because a lot of people that are in like the punk movement or even like other subculture things that branch out from there are usually disenfranchised, right? They, they're poor. They have experienced things that give them a lens of equity and empathy. Yeah. Right. And uh, you mentioned punks with lunch. They, they actually were invited to this, but they couldn't make it. Hopefully we will have them on in the future. For those of you not aware, that is a group that operates in Lansing. Um, I, I don't know if it operates outside of Lansing, but uh, you two are both Lansing based also, correct? Yes. And yeah. actually punks with lunch is a movement that started in California, in California. and oh, okay. Yep. So it's a movement that started in California and you just had a bunch of people coming out saying, you know what, I noticed this need for, um, you know, harm reduction. And that can be anything from a blanket to clean needles, right? That could be a sandwich. Um, just trying to provide a service where we saw a gap. And then uh, the co a co-founder of the movement, Julia Miller, saw what they were doing and was like, hell yeah, how can we get this done? And her and her partner, Martin, just went out and started it. They just went out, they made a bunch of sandwiches, they went out and just started handing them out. And over the years, it's been, it's grown to every other Saturday. It doesn't matter who you are, you want to come help, you want to come eat, whatever, you just come help set up. And then they sit at Rudder Park, they hand out hygiene products, they hand out clean needles and Narcan, they hand out clothes and conversation. I think that's the, yeah. the most important part of everything is that when they're doing advocacy work, we're out there just conversating with people and just seeing them, right? Because a lot of people in our community, our homeless neighbors, right? Our unhoused neighbors are seen as outside of our community. And that is just not accurate. And that's like the most punk thing to do, right? Like everyone's welcome here. Yeah. No, I largely agree. I think that's one of the reasons um, in one of my favorite books I've read this past couple of years called Queer Core, How to Punk a Revolution. And um, Deke Nielsen talks about how all you had to do was show up and you were part of it. And it, it was, he, he talks about how there were um, Catholic school girls who were kicked out of school um, there were queer people, there were people of color, there were people from all different aspects of life. And the only thing that kind of held them together is that they largely existed in places where they didn't feel like they belonged or didn't have the support they need. And so queer core spaces came out of need. It didn't matter if you guys agreed on everything or not, but you agreed that you all deserved a safe space to exist in and to flourish and to live as much as you can um, as an uninterrupted self. Now, if uh, any of the, our listeners have, um, <clears throat> if they live in the Lansing area, if, uh, if you happen to have driven down Michigan Avenue and seen uh, basically a, a blue TARDIS sitting there, you know, a Doctor Who TARDIS, that, uh, that's actually a food pantry operated by Punks with Lunch, which is like the most, this is the most awesome food pantry I've ever seen. I've, you know, I had to pull over and see what it was. And I have from time to time put food in there myself. 
so getting back to uh, punk theology, though, what um, what makes this a theology, a religion, as opposed to just, say, a philosophy? How, how would you distinguish those? Yeah, so um, Paul Tillich did a lot of work. He was a German um, Lutheran theologian. He did a lot of work on this idea of taking God from being this metaphysical being and instead saying that God is whatever concerns you ultimately. And so that has opened up a lot of conversation as far as, because, I mean, theology is going to have some sort of thing that we call God. Um, for me, um, that is the ability to be as much of yourself as possible, as well as encouraging that human flourishing. And I get that from the, the British political punk movement, the queer core scene, the riot girl scene, where they want to create a world where people have a chance to be them radically accepted as themselves and be uplifted and find a way to exist amongst paradigms that may not want them to exist as they fully and authentically are. And so that radical freedom of self to me and that ability to flourish is very much the God of that. And if we look at those three movements that I mentioned, they're all centered about bringing that to life. So um, as a Unitarian Universalist, we don't use the wor word worship to be like, I am worshiping a deity. We use that word and it means, what do we find worth shaping? And so within that kind of mindset, as well as saying, hey, God is this actual human thing, tangible thing that we're aiming for, um, we... Work. So it's not a supernatural God, no. it's not a, an other sort of entity. No, and, and it's not to say that different punks may hold to those things, um, but that isn't what I see as the God of, of my theology, my theological framework. It's much more of the human flourishing component and the, the radical acceptance of self and what happens when we're allowed to live into that from a creative standpoint or... Yeah, any creative standpoint that you can think about, um, whether that be work or art or music or how you raise your family or how you interact with community, because the less the less social expectations that we take off of ourselves allow us to live in ways that we could not have imagined before. And I think, too, um, when we start to look at the mundane as being sacred, regardless of if you're a pagan, Christian, Jewish Buddhist, whatever, if you start to look through this lens of like everyday being is sacred, you find that you move differently through the day, right? You don't look outward for that spiritual nourishment. Um, some of that comes from within and just being able to exist in this moment and being present and mindful of yourself and your community and others is where growth happens, right? Not just on a spiritual level, but like an, a, a physical or material level too. Yeah, and then the physical and material, when you have a more secure physical and material existence allows you to live a more healthier spiritual life. Okay, uh, and um, Kelsey, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about your activism and your work and uh, yeah. some of the needs that uh, that they have there. Uh, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
Well, I've done I've done some work in the community at different nonprofits. Um, I kind of want to mention them briefly before I talk about what I'm doing now, because I think just to know about what's out there is super important. So for one, we talked about Punks with Lunch. That's a great organization. Um, also, the Fledge, which is awesome. Punks with Lunch is run out of Julia. Miller runs her harm reduction out of the fledge where you can go on certain times of the week and get like clean needles. You can get Narcan conversation sandwich type thing. Um, the fledge is, is what yeah, I was going to say, where is the fledge? If people yeah. Know. The fledge is at 1300 Eureka. It's literally right behind Sparrow hospital on Michigan. Um, it's, I call it a community incubator because it incubates the, whatever need the community has. Uh, it's not a community center. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. It houses concerts for local talent. It, it has the you know Narcan. It has a free food stand outside. It has free clothing downstairs. Um, it has entrepreneurial help. Right, Jerry, that runs the Fledge. Um, <laughs> he does a lot of work with entrepreneurs and people that just kind of want to sit down and have a conversation and, and get some assistance with whatever they kind of need help with. Um, he's a yes man. He likes to say yes to everyone, right? Do you want to do, you want to do a kid's Halloween party? Um, absolutely. Come do it here. Free for the community. Do you want to do, would they have a kid's entrepreneur program where they help kids like establish and learn how to have businesses? Um, they, they do a lot for, for the East side and, and just greater Lansing in general. And I, I love the spirit of community that comes from that. And that's why I do work with Eve right now. So Eve is a domestic violence and sexual assault resource center and shelter. We do so many, so many things. So we're Tri-County. We actually are in Ingham, Ian, and Clinton. Uh, we provide advocacy work for and support for survivors of domestic and sexual assault. Um, that looks like going to sit with you if you need a SANE exam um, after, you know, a rape or other other things that might happen. That means coming to sit with you in court if you need support. That means assisting you in how to write a PPO. Um, that also means providing a safe space for you if you need a month to be away from a violent situation. And the intersectionality there with the other stuff that we kind of do and think about is, is really beautiful because it's you don't get very many opportunities to, to be part of the cogs of change, right? Like, well, even as a teacher, which, you know, before I was teaching, it did feel like I was making change within the kids in my classroom, but not on a, like a greater level. And this, this work kind of does that. Um, but I mean, it also goes hand in hand with a, an unfortunate side effect, right? So nonprofits are the, a side effect of capitalism. Yeah. We put emphasis on people that may be struggling just as much as the people that they're helping to step up and provide services and support um, where we see government failing to do, right? We see these large corporations failing to uplift the community and it's all put down on the people that are just living in the day to day. 
I mean, so picking up the pieces that are being dropped by capitalism. Is that kind of exactly? And so it's 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 gross too, right? Like also when you think about funding, every nonprofit is doing a great job so, so providing some kind of service, but we're all fighting for the same funding. And it's like, how can we be collaborative in our service? How can we come together to make sure that we're, you know, providing this overarching what am I looking for? Like overarching Sorry. service to our community when we have to be in arms against each other because this hundred thousand dollar grant's only going to go to five people in the state of Michigan. It's there's weird questions too because it's like, does the existence of the nonprofits who are servicing community are they supporting the current way? Yeah, that the government is is failing to meet the needs. Like when we're when when com communities are acting as band aids for the symptoms that are perpetuated by the people that we elect into office who are supposed to represent us and uplift us it's almost like we're subconsciously in some ways supporting that oppressive or suppressive system itself i mean not even subconsciously i think it, we are exactly doing that it's one of the reasons i found fault with teaching is that i felt like i could make space and love each student in my classroom but i was continuing to perpetuate a system that disembodied people and so it's like a it's like a yes and situation i love it absolutely love the work we do but god damn we should not be the ones that have to fucking do it and if we are we should have more support and more collaborative and more communication it's just yeah it just is i think yeah <laughs> so if anyone listening to this wants to learn more either about the theology or or Eve or some of your other organizations they mentioned. And I mean, can they, con uh, how do they get a hold of you or these groups? Absolutely. So Punks with Lunch, go on their Facebook. If you want to go down and help them hand out sandwiches, just show up. I, we started, when we started volunteering with them, we had just moved to Lansing and we wanted to get involved in the community that we just moved into. And so we literally just showed up at Rudder Park one Saturday and then we just kind of never left like and created those relationships and we've kind of drifted away from centering on doing that but we still hold strong relationships with the people in that group and yeah. um doing work with or the fledge same kind of thing look on their facebook or their their website and see what events they have and just kind of go um as far as eve i mean that's a little bit different it's not something you can just show up to but if you do need services or help or assistance with domestic violence, sexual assault, elder abuse, stalking. Uh, we have a 24 hour resource line, pick up the phone or there's a chat feature um, on our website that you can use as well. Um, but yeah, and if you wanna learn about punk theology, you probably can just search up John Mark um, on Facebook. I also did um, an hour long webinar um, that goes into a lot more detail um, for Inclusive Justice Michigan, which I'm a part of. Um, which you can find either on our website, inclusivejustice.org, or they have a YouTube channel as well. Yeah, absolutely look me up on Facebook if you have any questions. It's a community project because every time I have a conversation with somebody, it reveals something I may not have considered or gives me something more to chew on. And because I'm developing it as a school project and in my daily life, like that's those are the conversations that I love. Okay. okay. Um, Kelsey, John, Mark, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank, thank you for having us.
You have been listening to the Michigan Mausoleum. I've been Rokas, your host. The guardian at the creaking door was Miranda Guthrie. My thanks to my guests today, John Mark and Kelsey Hector. Also to Theory Ezra of the Punk Art Collective and John Gibson of Asylum Windsor. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and review. It helps the show to grow. The Michigan Mausoleum is a World Goth Day Mid-Michigan production. Until next time, stay dark. The Michigan Mausoleum is presented by World Goth Day Mid-Michigan and the team that brought you Convergence 24.